You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Fathoms and Enneagram Podcast. Uh, I want to say hey to our guests, our special guests today, Joel and Jim. These guys are the hosts of the Art of Growth Podcast. Hey, guys. Welcome welcome to the podcast. Grateful to have you. It's good Hi. to be here. How you doing on this, what is it, Monday? On this Monday. <laughs> Monday. I'm doing good now because I'm doing something fun, but... Uh, there's construction going on in my house, so this this is not fun. Um, okay, my kitchen is now in my living room, so right now <laughs> there is no fun happening in this household. <laughs> Jeez, you just right. got to reframe, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> I get it, Jim. How you uh, doing, man? I'm doing good. I just hung out with my wife and had a wonderful morning, and we had like a date this morning, and then oh, cool. I I just came in here a little bit ago, so no, everything's good in my world. Awesome. I'm way more relaxed. As he sips a monster. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you relax, right? <laughs> a, yeah. You have a different life than me, my friend. Uh, uh, well, you have four children. So, you know. So you all host the Art of Growth podcast. Tell us what's the, what's the origin story of that, um, both y'all's personal journey with the Enneagram and how you all came together. Well, I'll, I'll tell my version of it. Um, and that is I was kind of burned out and starting to seek some some help and uh, something I don't do ever. Um, and uh, as I was reading all these books, I think one of them referenced the Enneagram. And I thought, I've heard of this before. Hmm. And so I started looking into it again. Uh, it took me down the rabbit hole and I ended up deciding I wanted to get certified on a whim because I had no direction, um, just a sense that this was my next step. So I took it. And while going through certification, and there's a process after the classes where you have to do all these panels, you're interviewing panels of the same type, and you have to record them for your coach to look at and review. And Jim's like, well, hey, why don't we just throw these up on podcasts? You know, maybe a few people might be interested. <laughs> and, uh, Little so, did you, know. you know, we did that no. and suddenly uh, we had all these downloads and Jim, you have a better memory of the, the numbers, but it sort of shocked us and we didn't know what to do with it because neither mm. one of us are really, we're not very smart when it comes to this sort of thing of making <laughs> a business out of anything. Yeah. So we're just like, what do you do with all this stuff? Well, this is great. It's interesting. It's fun. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. But it started a bumpy launch to a business. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I always say it was an accidental business. Like Joel always jokes around about the purpose-driven life, and uh, he wants to write a book called "The Accident-Driven Life" because everything, everything's been accidental. Like, so yeah, we we threw it up, and and the thing is, we threw up the whole first season at once. Mm. Um, so uh, an introduction, we recorded an introduction because I came from like a production background. I had done like film scoring and uh, produced audio books, that kind of thing. And so I was like, well, yeah, let's. We had a, another podcast that we did that nobody listened to. And so we thought this would kind of be the same. <laughs> like we would put this up and like hardly anybody would listen to it. <laughs> and so we threw up the whole first season. And I looked like a week later and I was like, yeah, that's about what I expected. Like 200 people or whatever had listened. Mm-hmm. And then I looked uh, like two or three weeks later and it was over 7,000. And then I looked like a week later and it was like 20,000. I was like, uh, hey, Joel. Maybe we should think about a second season. 
and you should get a website <laughs> and you should like offer coaching. He's like, oh, okay. You think so? And so we like literally totally accidental. And so it didn't really form as a business and start where like I got certified and then, you know, having Suzanne work with us starting to do corporate and individual clients and all that stuff till mm. really the beginning of 2020 is when we started like forming as a business. Cause some other friends of ours who are really good entrepreneurs and good at business, like came along and said, Hey, let me help you. Cause you don't know what you're doing. And we're like, that's true. Mm. So my dear friend, uh, Laura McCallan, who's incredible in podcasts, author, best-selling author uh, in sobriety. She wrote a book called We Are the Luckiest. Yeah, and she read that last year. It's a good book. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. And she's the one who named The Art of Growth. So she came up with that oh, name wow. while we were sitting in Starbucks one day. Yeah. And yeah, and the rest mm. is history. Yeah. Heck yeah. Can we jump into the name a little bit? I mean, I'm sure yeah. like you're like, yeah, that's a great name. Let's roll with it. How is that? evolved for you all like what is why art and why growth yeah what do those well, mean that's, to you, you, you i'm glad you're asking that question the way you framed it because it wasn't just like oh that sounds cool let's go with that that'll mm. be a that'll that'll get some views you know just because it's a sure. it's a fun name for us it really spoke and at least i'll speak for me it, it spoke of the exactly how it felt to me that this was an mm. art mm. <laughs> this was you know, there was so much to it that that was it involved our uh, our intuition. It involved our uh, our senses. It involved so much to it, and that I don't think growth is a is anything that can be scientifically at this point, anyways, can be scientifically repeatable by these you know four or five steps, or even ten or fifteen or twenty steps. Yeah, there's something that happens to all of us where. We could be doing some work and it's necessary. You still have to do the work, mm. even though the work doesn't always produce exactly the results that you're seeking. Mm -hmm. But as mm. you're going along, and you all know this, suddenly one day something clicks and you don't know how it clicked or something comes your way and you don't know how it came your way. And so for us, it was this back and forth of, you know, uh, both an initiation and a receptivity to the way spirituality works. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the art piece of it. And then mm -hmm. the growth piece of it mm -hmm. to me is, this is a deep value that I've, um, I've always had, I think, since I was really young. And actually quite surprised that in the world that I grew up in, there wasn't as much interest in growth, mm -hmm. uh, even though it was a, you know, mm -hmm. a very religious world. It was mm -hmm. surprising to me. And yet that turned out to be something that is, I have value and I value more today than ever before. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember we were talking about different imagery and we were trying to describe to Laura like what we were going for. And we said, we love the Enneagram, but we don't want to be tied to a tool as the only thing that we do because we have this broader perspective. We want to bring in everything. And I remember the imagery that came to mind was like, it wasn't like this perfect flower. It was like the, the hands that are dirty from being in the earth, making things grow. And, and really believing that your your life is not about an arrival. It's not about a specific moment. The thing that's running in the back of my mind with every person we meet and every person we talk to is that you are creating a work of art with your life. This is what it's about. You 
are an incredible work of art. And the way you create your own life is like creating a great work of art. So that when you look at the end of your life, you see this masterpiece where you've smeared the canvas at times. And at times you've gotten really specific times where there were dark seasons of chaos and there were seasons of light and order and mm. wonder. And so it's like, I want the scope of that in anything we do. And to me, even and in a name, what is a name? It's like a reminder of like who you are and where you're going and what you're about. Right, right. So art, what I hear you saying is art encompasses the whole experience of the human being, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, and yeah, thank you, Jen. That's excellent addition to this because that's the, for me, the word beauty has become one of my favorite words um, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it includes things that we view as imperfect. It includes Mm -hmm. things that we think are broken. (laughs) And we don't always know if that's actually true or not. But it's no longer exiling the different parts of ourselves, but welcoming them back. And in the acceptance, in the allowance of that, uh, something changed. In fact, I think uh, you just posted something, Seth, uh, by Thomas Merton. Always, yes. I was like, oh, (laughs) that is good. We've we've used that line, but we actually didn't realize it came from Thomas Merton. Mm, uh, What did did you post? I love Thomas Merton. What did you you post? I don't know what I posted. (laughs) While Seth is looking for that, it makes me think of one of our mutual friends, Seth and I, who talks about fields, not factories, where factories is about eliminating variables, about finding the most efficient path that is predictable, where fields is about including the variables and knowing that it is, the outcome is uncertain, but you have to learn to work with that instead of try to (laughs) avoid cover your crops from all the rain or something like that, right? Uh, just That's what I'm hearing as you guys speak about what the name means to you. Mm. Yeah, it also reminded me of guards versus gardeners, which is a thing I've, I've had in some of the mm. poems mm. and other things I've written. Because I think growing up in, a, in the church world, everything is seen as like you have to be careful, you have to guard something. Like something wants to be taken or something Mm. wants to be messed up and we have to defend theology, defend God, defend whatever. Mm. And I'm always kind of like, you need to def- like what do you? It's <laughs> like we are we are gardeners, not guards. I want to watch. Mm. I want to watch things grow and be a part of things, and that means thorns and weeds. And I even think of the the parable of Jesus. He's just like you know you've got to the weeds are going to grow up with the crops, and then we're going to sort them out later. Like, but sure. just just be out there, just be in there, and and, yeah. and make things grow. Well, this isn't a Thomas Merton quote, but there is a Car- Carl Rogers quote that I am a big fan of. He says the curious. Pa- the curious paradox is that when I can accept myself just as I am, then I can change. Because there's so, there, to mm-hmm. me, there's so much about real transformation that needs to be whatever is the hindrance is usually being avoided or denied on some level. And you have to be able to embrace it and not condone it. That's the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, acceptance is not condoning and I, or resignation. I think that mm-hmm. often gets confused, but I think it's right. acceptance or embracing the fact that this is true of me right now, but I can't become anything different until I say it. You know, mm. there's there's power in that. You know, so. Oh, that's a that's a really good point, and I think to the fear that a lot of people have, which is that if I accept, <laughs> am I condoning? Am I acquiescing? Yes. Am I giving up in some in some way? Um, so I think it's a really important point to make that no, yeah. we're not. We're just looking at it before 
you know, I've, I've used a, a dumb mm. illustration of like you walk into the room and at first the lights are off and you're tripping <laughs> over stuff, right? Yeah. And then you flip the light on and you realize that things are in a kind of chaos. Mm. Right? But if you take the pause before you start going crazy, um, you might discover something new. You might discover a different way of even organizing than you had before, you know? Mm. And we're so quick to have, re we're so resistant sometimes to chaos in our lives that we're just well, immediately, you know, back to that, uh, to that previous order when mm. maybe life is trying to push us beyond to a higher level of order. If we can stay present to that just a little bit longer. Yeah. If I could add to that analogy a bit, sometimes I've been in a room trying to be very careful not to stumble and fall mm. and then I turn on the light and I'm like there's nothing in this room <laughs> mm. <laughs> like it's all yeah. in my yeah. imagination I'm tripping over my own feet kind of brings us to um, you both have expressed that you are a part of um, you have been a part of or are a part of some sort of spirituality how would you in your own definition define spirituality in psychology like the work of spirituality and the work mm. of psychology <laughs> this is like the two pillars of the well, narrative tradition. Like there's three pillars and two of them are, mm -hmm. are that, the psychology mm -hmm. piece, I think, and the uh, definitely the spirituality piece. Um, yeah, Jim, your thoughts, what do you... Oh, mm -hmm. I, the first thing that came to mind is I remember like um, when I was very much in Christian world and they, they kept using this word soul. They'd always talk about the word soul as, and it was almost like this disembodied version of yourself and then as as i like we got more into greek and i like did some of that stuff he like uh this word is suke it's like where we get our word psyche and it's like so much of what's going on in the internal world it's not an other it's an in and understanding that the psychological and the spiritual are not separate realms just like this the natural and the supernatural are not separate realms that we like the, we, there is not nature and then like the man-made, like everything is actually, we are part of this nature. Like these are all one things. One, these are one things. <laughs> I said one things. <laughs> that that actually, uh, that checks out. Um, <laughs> that checks out. <laughs> that checks out. <laughs> but it, it is, it's all one, it's one package in my mind. It's not a separate component. And actually mm -hmm. I think what we, one of the things that goes wrong is when we fraction ourselves into these different components that do not exist. As and they become ugly. When we do that, they become ugly. Any of these things, you know, when you separate out psychology and try to make it strictly mm -hmm. that, it becomes ugly. It doesn't actually work. And, you know, when you try to separate spirituality, which, sadly, totally. we've all been part of those circles where it's like, nope to this, mm -hmm. nope to that, you know, it's just all yeah. what we perceive as, as you know, spirituality yeah. or religiosity and which is what I what it's more of than than say spirituality, but it becomes something that's really not healthy. It's tough to be integrated, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to separate out. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, for those of you who want to nerd out on uh, on the brain in McGilchrist's to uh, the master and his emissary, absolutely brilliant work. Um, but that the bra left brain does want that. It wants to separate things out. It wants mm -hmm. to carve things. It wants to know things in their reducible way, while the right side of the brain is much more integrated. And we have both within mm -hmm. us, but we tend to prefer you know, we tend to prefer the left sides oftentimes. Yeah. So. It makes me think of one of my favorite lyrics. I'm forgetting the artist, but he, the lyric is, you're doing it wrong, dissecting the bird to find the song. Mm. Ooh. Wow. Yes. Yeah. That's it's good. Powerful. It's so good. And what, what are we doing when we're dissecting? I mean, <clears throat> we're killing things, honestly. Either yeah. desperately needs fixed in surgery 
or you're literally killing something to figure out how it mm. works. And then I think that's important. That's a very important step to understanding the world. Like you understand a butterfly by dissecting it or a frog by dissecting it. But if you're going around dissecting everything, you're, you're literally rendering it <laughs> no longer to be able to evolve and exist as the mm. thing that it actually is. You're pinning it down. Which ties into what you guys were talking about before about like acceptance has to precede growth. You can't, mm. you know, you, you actually have to accept as it is. If you don't, and because we see this all, like, and I'm sure you guys have seen this too, when people um, are rejecting themselves, they're like, I have to fix myself. If that's their starting point, that is exactly what they're doing. That's what we're all doing. And we all tend to do that. We mm-hmm. end up trying to dissect ourselves. And the mind is such a meaning-making machine that we create mm-hmm. these interpretations, psychological interpretations, spiritual interpretations. And all of it is some kind of a dissection where acceptance is not the starting point. Grace is not the starting point. It's I have to change mm-hmm. or I have to get fixed or there's something inherently wrong with me. That becomes the starting point. As long as the starting point, you mm-hmm. are dissecting the bird to find the song. Yeah, on some level, I feel like there's either indirect or direct versions of how we condemn ourselves. And condemnation only ever reinforces and oppresses. It doesn't allow us to become anything more than what we previously have been. So indirect or direct condemnation, I think, or judgment, you know, the inner critic, how we're, you know, allowing it to th- reinforce the, 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 the construct that we're living in, or there's a mm. condemnation that's still happening there or a judgment. Mm. Um, and the only way is, mm. I think, like Jim just said, acceptance on some level, mm. which, which mm. to me is a relaxing, right? This is what we're, anytime we're doing this, mm. is there's no way to become anything more than this. So that's why the spiritual aspect has to work in tandem with the psychological aspect. So I, I like to look at the Enneagram through understanding it as a categorical and a dimensional both and both both of those so you need the categorical to help you open to the dimensional right say more about you that can't, what what does that mean explain that a bit more yeah so the category is how we label you know how what our our egos kind of are flavored with our type. whether that's our enneagram type or not okay. uh, but you have to to label it first or at least it gives you more of a handle on whatever the infinite is that is your capacity mm. yeah so Does that makes sense. M- it, McGilchrist says a ton about that, and and mm. it's it, it'll, yeah, he it'll and blow our your mind away. We, we do this. Yeah, do you, this you must have been hanging out with him. <laughs> His stuff on that is uh, it's it's crazy because it's both. He says he says you can't have one without the other. You have to yeah. actually have the particular, and the particular is within the universal, and the universal yep. is within the particular. And any yes. separating out of that does not work. Um, you know. Totally agreed. Um, I want to bring this in, and I've sort of mentioned these words before, but I, have you heard of the apophatic and the cataphatic? Yes, yeah. for sure. Yes, yeah, yeah. So the cataphatic is to name, is to put handles on something infinite. We're talk, Usually it's talking about God, right? Mm. It's to name something. It's to put uh, attributes to something so that we can understand it. But the apophatic says to name something is to negate something. So you also need the ability to, to, to be able to hold things loosely so that you can understand beyond your conceptual mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. This goes to the positive and negative of practices. Yes, it's, totally. It's everywhere. Everything you think about 
has those uh, those components in it. You know, I think of the ancient world with there was a sort of purity mindset that uh, began to emerge where you, in order for, you know, the more spiritual you were, that meant you were further away from the earth, the dirt. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you'd, you'd have these structures that were built in, and the pharaohs lived in them, and, uh, and the priests lived in them. And the purer the stones and the material, the less dirt it had in it. And that still is within our minds. It's still mm. something we think about. Like, I, yeah. I need to get rid of certain things in my life immediately in order to, you know, become mm. what I'm supposed to be. And the, the ability to have and to conceive of spirituality being the mixture of everything together and mm-hmm. and allowing it to sit for a bit and, and to pause for that um, deeper wisdom mm-hmm. to arise within us that then gives a sense of greater order. But it is, like you said, you still have to have, okay, there's now there's a new order, right? So, that means there's categories. Yep. And then you got to hold those categories loosely because it's going to take you to another stage at some point. That's going to yeah. be, and to me, that's growth. Mm-hmm. And the failure of growth is to failure to recognize when the stage has ended. And it's yeah. time for you to to move on to the next. That to totally. me is the that to mm, me good. that to me from a, from my history. My, I'm raised in the church, got an MDiv from seminary. The scriptures to me, that's really the big issue: is the failure to transcend. It's the failure to recognize this stage is past, and you're still trying to hold on to the previous one. That's the big issue. I think yeah. that's happening there. You know, if someone asked me to 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 say what spirituality is, I can only talking stories because mm-hmm. because it's so hard to name what that is mm-hmm. it does not not involve psychology mm-hmm. it does not not involve the sciences yeah. the hard sciences the soft sciences you know it involves it's it's all of it but i th- i think that what it is is it's a disposition uh fundamentally is my my, my take on it it's a disposition towards uh growth towards the awareness of how small you are and how big the universe is and kind of an uh, uh, of an awakening to the to the soul to the to the deeper parts of who we are, awakening to beauty, awakening to hope, awakening. I mean, mm-hmm. how do, how else do we describe those moments of transcendence? When you're right. sitting there and you're looking at a sunset and you're mm-hmm. struck by that, and tears begin to flow from your eyes, and you're just looking at this thing. What's happening? How do you, how do we psychologize that? How do we how do we put scientific language to that? The best thing we can do is say. I don't know. Something happened, and something's happening in this moment. To me, that's that's how I describe spirituality: um, deeper love, deeper justice. You know, greater justice, I should say, for for the world. I mean, these are things that are that to me are very deeply spiritual, and we know it when we see it and we hear it. That was great, Jim. That was yeah, <laughs> cool. <laughs> Uh, so if we could backtrack just a second, cool. so uh, I don't think we've specifically said this. You guys are both uh, certified then in with what tradition? Narrative. Same. Yeah. Right. And did I, am I remembering correctly that one of you guys have done some work with? What, I, what's I did with Deb Uten and Joel yeah, did yeah, with right. Helen Palmer. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how, I'm curious. How have you guys seen? What were the connections or the the distinctions or the differences between some of your your trainings? Have you seen those overlap well? Have there been? How have you guys managed kind of your both of your study with the Enneagram? I know what Jim's going to say, but go for well, it. Well, I mean, <laughs> honestly, I honestly think that our prime uh, area of study has been 
our panels, the people that we've talked to, mm-hmm. the clients, like yeah. that is totally. that is way informed our perception of the Enneagram than the schools we've been to or the books we read or anything else. And and Deb is uh, narrative certified, right? Yeah, she comes from that yeah. same tradition. So, and, yeah. and like, why did I decide to study with her? Like, we um, were ta- we had her on the podcast to talk about spiral dynamics because we had been talking That's about right. an overlap between. Enneagram and Spiral Dynamics, and we didn't think anyone else had ever been interested in this, and we found that she was right at the time where we were saying, I think we're going to be taking on some mm-hmm. corporate clients, and maybe I should get certified too, because I'm very much the autodidact. I much prefer to study everything apart from any kind of a system or formal structure. Like I don't tend to go that direction with anything I've ever done. People ask me, like, because I had scored like several full-length feature films, they're like, did you go to music school? I was like, no, I just... I just do things and I, I like to learn on my own. But, you know, then there's a, when you're doing a business, you need that formal structure. So it was just kind of like, oh, this, this, this is a perfect, you know, kind of opportunity. But as far as what has informed us the most, it's this tradition that the Enneagram has that it goes back to self reporting, people saying what it's like to be them. And we will always mm-hmm. hold that as the most important thing in our learning about the Enneagram. Or anything else. What about when you're, uh, and it's obvious that somebody is definitely not the type they think they are. How do you guys handle that on panels? Oh, uh, and it's happened. <laughs> We've yeah, had people on yeah. our panels that, you know, it, pr- pr- particularly I think in the yeah, early. Yeah, the first two seasons, uh, yes, not really after that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After that, we've we, we figured we'd do a little bit more, you know, interviewing beforehand. The thing yeah, that yeah. other people would say, well, isn't that obvious? Yeah, well, not for me. So, but yeah, we started interviewing them and and really understanding, making sure that they understood their type. Also, what's interesting is how much it's changed over the last few years. Like when we started, there weren't that many people who knew about the Enneagram and they weren't them. And this is only 2017, 2018, you know, right around the time I was getting my certification. And all of a sudden now it's people have, people know the, know a lot more, you know, um, so we find that there's a lot more who are qualified, but when that's happened and we've had people who don't know their type, I will gently make some suggestions, you know, and I learned this from, I have, I have such high, high, high regard and respect for Helen Palmer and the school that the narrative Enneagram, amazing teachers there. I could, I could list them and tell you about each of them and how they've impacted my life. They're just hugely impactful people. And they taught me this, you know, that I, I would watch somebody on a, on a panel who was there to be certified, who I'm thinking, boy, that's tough. I do not see that as their type. And I look over at one of the faculties, uh, faculty <laughs> members, and they'd gently say, well, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I remember thinking I had a different um, dominant instinct. And I said, yeah, I think I'm a social seven, you know, and Peter O'Hanrahan just said, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible. Sure. And I said, oh, come on, come out with it. <laughs> and he says, no, you might want to, you just, you might want to consider the sexual instinct. I just, I feel a little bit more, you know, fire in you and a little bit more of that. And hmm. so it was funny. And I turned out he was right. But the way he framed it was not a, you're not yeah. this, you're that. It was a, oh, sure, you might be. I mean, really, ultimately, you have to know that. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you that. And because of that, I think we insist on, both of us insist mm-hmm. on, we're not going to tell you your type. What we're going to do is help you to uncover that because the discovery and the journey itself is that important. It's as important as knowing what you are. It's not about getting the answer correct. 
It's about taking yeah. the practice is about taking the steps of discovery. And as you do that, that's that'll set you up for life because that's a lifelong, you know, um, practice. So, mm. um, yeah, so we do that occasionally. Um, but yeah, if someone's, if someone's clearly not their type now and they want to be on our panel, we'll say, why don't you consider this, uh, this type possibly and, and see if that fits. But we're not going to put them on a panel if we don't think that they're. Yeah. 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 And this is kind of an aside, sure. but one thing that we've told people before when they're in that process of discovery that it's more important to know your work than your type. So a mm. lot of times when people come to the Enneagram, especially in the early days, it seems l less happening now uh, because there is more of an acceptance of like every type. But it, I really thought at the beginning there were certain types that people didn't want to be or people in certain circumstances they didn't want to be, certain things. It's still hard for some people in certain arenas to accept that they have like the sexual instinct, for instance, or something like that. Like it's hard to see. So some people, they almost have to start with an adjacent number to, in order to like do some work and actually get into mm -hmm. it and then realize, Oh, I think I'm actually this type because honestly, I think for some people, if they saw their type in all of its glory right off the bat, they would be just so overwhelmed that they might shut down. And I know that happened to a friend of mine. She read, mm. she's a type one and she was rich, reading Richard Rohr's book mm. on the Enneagram about the type one and he's a type one. And she said, I shut the book and I couldn't look at the Enneagram for a year. And wow. I get it. Like, because when you see certain things about it, especially if you are, you know, a self-critical type, you really focus in on what's wrong with you. You just gravitate towards all those sentences and that's what stands out on the page to you it can really cause an emotional shutdown, which is why we talk about this idea of acceptance. And we've it's come up several times, so I want to clarify one thing about acceptance and getting to know your type and yourself entirely. When we use the word acceptance, we don't mean the cheap version of like, you're all right, I'm all right, whatever you say, everything's fine about you. That's not acceptance, that's acquiescence. Acceptance is, this is who I am right now, this is where I am. And we say your, your mm -hmm. type is not your destination. It's the you are here spot on the map. This is your starting point. Understanding that this is where you are right now. But this is not the definition of where you must you will become. So wherever people are, if they understand their type or they're not sure about it, just be right there, man. That's cool. It's good. Yeah, so this actually leads us really well into kind of addressing the theme for us this season, which has been story, mm -hmm. uh, specifically knowing your story. And then once you know your story, you then can begin to uncover what stories you might need to drop, mm -hmm. right? The, thing, the way that you've identified or limited yourself, right, to a specific narrow collection of habits. Um, and then understanding the stories of others. So knowing our stories, drop how to drop, what stories to drop, and then understanding others. So... One of the things we wanted to ask you guys about, uh, just to get your take on, was through that lens of story and Enneagram, kind of what, what, what hits you? What, what, uh, yeah, what comes up for you around that? <laughs> That's a big question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I could take it in a bunch of different directions. <clears throat> I love open-ended questions the most. So, <laughs> Well, it's almost very true to the tradition, right? We do that when we type people. We have these huge open-ended yeah. questions to see where they take it. So mm. this will be, right. see where Joel takes this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Could be, well, you, yeah. know, I'm not, you know, I'm not shy. I'm not going to laugh. just like I dive in. I love this stuff. I think when I, you know, when I first started with the um, training, the certification program, there was a part of my ego, and I love how Richard Rose says, you have to reclaim 
parts of your ego sometimes to let go of it again. That there are parts of yourself that you have maybe exiled away prematurely that you have to welcome back. And that was very much part of my process was, oh, that was part of my story. Oof, I don't like that part of my story at all. So I forget it, you know, and as my type, I, I just want to look at the bright side of things. So I forget the dark side. I forget the negativity. I forget the painful parts. And if I do remember them, the way I describe them is void of any emotional connection to it. So I can, I can talk about a past story and like matter of factly, even with some laughter with it. So the reclaiming of parts of my story was really going into some of the pain and feeling it to some degree all over again, but separating out some of the interpretation. That was a big lesson I had to learn was how much interpretation I make of past events that were painful and which just adds to the pain. It just makes this, the pain into some serious suffering, you know, and, and so able, you know, welcoming back some of those stories and then being able to recognize that there were some, some limitations I had that, um, I had to let go of as well. You know, part of, part of the funny thing about being a seven was recognizing that things I was working on and trying to fix weren't the real problem. Mm-hmm. And, and then I started realizing, I think that's probably true for a lot of folks out there. And like my wife was like, no, that's not what I, that's, that's not the problem. This part, that's the problem. Could you, you give know, us an so. example? Well, yeah, like, um, like my my dis, my deciding to be funny at different times, oftentimes is is at the wrong time. So that's true. So I would do that, but to shut that off as a problem, which I really perceived as a problem. This is one of the stories mm. I told myself for a long, long time. Uh, raised in a very conservative, rigid upbringing, with where laughter and play was not taken really well, I dis, I had to learn how to survive. So. I repress some of that and try to be serious, right? So sevens, we want to be taken seriously while still being able to be funny and playful. But that part I had to, I had to really shut down for a while. And I did, I did to, my, to the best of my ability for a number of years. And realizing that that wasn't actually what I was, what, what was needed to be shut off. It was just recognizing that when I'm going to that as a means to escape something difficult, it's probably going to be inappropriate. <laughs> so, I'll, get, I'll give an example. So, I love making my son laugh. He's 11 years old, and he loves my humor. He is funnier than me by far. He's got an incredible <laughs> sense of humor, very quick-witted. And so, he's brushing his teeth. And, you know, 11-year-olds don't brush their teeth very quickly, at least not my son. He takes forever to do anything. And so, he's in the bathroom, and my poor wife is trying to get him ready for bed, which is like a, it's, it, it, it's a, it's a massive undertaking. So she's getting him ready and I'll walk by the bathroom and I'll see him and I'll do something stupid just as I'm walking by the bathroom. <laughs> and he starts laughing and he turns his head and he looks over. And a couple of times my wife will look over at me and go, stop, you know, like she's parenting two kids. Mm. And then I ask myself, it was that for me or was that for him? Mm-hmm. I realized, no, that's, that's for me in that moment. So while my gift of play is good, and it shouldn't be exiled the way I did when I was younger, mm. it's inappropriate if I'm going to it because I want to have fun. Yeah. All, and just by myself. So mm-hmm. I tell all other sevens, like, look, 
you're here to throw a party, but make sure that everybody's welcomed and is having a good time. Don't do it for yourself exclusively, you know? Mm. And so this is part of the work is just having to recognize that was a story I told myself that isn't true. I can welcome back the humor. And I remember laughing so much during certification, mm. but I thought to myself, I, I, I was, I felt like I was, you know, transported into an, a, a new dimension. Like I could be myself fully. Nobody knew me out there. So I could be myself and reclaim some of those parts and then discern what parts were, when was these parts appropriate and when they weren't, you know? So that was a lot of my work, I think. That's, I love that. Uh, it reminds me of, um, you know, a lot of previous understanding of like the, of ego work was to kill it off, uh, which reinforces it. Right. And, and I'm, I'm reminded of, I think in quotes, uh, as you may have we discovered online, uh, but Richard Rohr talks about how the ego is not meant to be killed off, but for a light to be shined on it, to be exposed, to see it for what it is, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very different thing. That's the acceptance, the real acceptance mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. you know how you're trying to to navigate this situation, how you're trying to manage manage anxiety. And then I think about how you guys are familiar with Mario Sakura, where he he talks about the Enneagram types as strategies. You know, he says for the seven striving to feel stimulated, and he works with the strategies in a way to uh, appeal to the ego to leverage what you're trying to get, but to be real with it, right? So like, how are you trying to get freedom in that situation? Well, how can you get more freedom by trying to understand what you're, you're doing here? Uh, so engaging yeah. the truth of the situation is actually how you're going to get more freedom, how you're going to, rather right. than right. you're getting the faux version of it, right? Yeah. But, but that entails exactly what you did, recognizing you're getting it, for yourself and not actually for your, for your son. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that. I'm glad you brought up what uh, Mario said. I actually never heard him say that, but that was something we've stumbled on is, is recognizing that the strategy is the way we're, the, the need that we have is not a bad problem. It's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, its intention is to be met, but just the strategy by which we use to get that met is oftentimes very flawed and does not mm-hmm. get those results. Because mm-hmm. from my understanding, it's actually, we're trying not so much to meet the core need of our type, as much as to not feel the pain of not getting that need met. And there's a million ways to do that, as we all know. (laughs) That's the reason why we, you know, we have all these addictions that we can go to because it's, it's not actually trying to get the need met. It's a strategy, but it's just to kind of reduce the pain, soften the pain a little Mm. bit. And Mm. so I'm glad you brought that up because that's the good news in all of this, right? It's like, look at, you know, you, you can get some of this, this met, but, not the way you're going about it, and it's actually working against you. This is the way we miss so, the mark, yeah. if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Jim, what was the question? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I went, I went yeah. in a different direction, uh, and I started yeah. to think about because yeah, yeah. well, what you were asking is you're like, you know, understanding your own story, and you know, as you move forward, realizing what do you need to drop, what do you need to let go of, and. It took me back to the adiphatic cataphatic thing. The adiphatic, there's things you need to dismiss, and there's the cataphatic things you want to include and embrace. I was just talking to my wife about it yesterday because she's in the school of spiritual direction with uh, sustainable faith, and they were talking about adiphatic cataphatic. And so much of that comes from like cataphatic is like the Western tradition. You need to include, add all this stuff in, and the Eastern tradition mm-hmm. is the adiphatic of like letting it go. And so I've always been torn between these worlds, right? And, and really my own motivations behind that. So when it comes to this, like understanding my own story, I really think a lot about the what to drop and what to include 
because I'm more likely to drop things. I'm more likely to disconnect myself from something and say, I don't want that. That's not a part of my life. That's not a part of my story. And I think because of that, I, yeah, that's where as an eight, I really fell into selective vulnerability over actual vulnerability Mm. because for a while when it came to, you know, being on a public podcast and stuff, I didn't want to admit the tradition I came from because Mm. one thing as an eight is I hate being interpreted or people to jump to conclusions about me. And so I'd rather leave certain things out of my story so that people can't jump to those conclusions. And so Mm. I'm really quick to drop things. Um, It's actually harder for me to include them, to to say what I say to clients and people all the time now in my group coachings and everything, which is that everything belongs, that it's all part of your story, that this is important. This is an important part of who you are because I have to, I have to say that to myself. There's certain painful things and there's certain, (laughs) here's what I caught myself doing. I caught myself for, for a few years in my early thirties telling my story in two different ways. One was like all of the, like the highlight reel, like all the great things that happened. And I would use that in selective places. And then the other one was like the painful experiences, that version of the story. You know, (laughs) to be an eight, you had an early loss of innocence. You had some pain pretty early on. You had some things that happened to you. And so there's that version of the story. And I, I really realized that I was separating these two stories out. And I really wanted to bring them together. I want to learn how to integrate. That is like the prime word for me around my story these days is I really want to integrate like the, the who I was, even though the pieces may not fit anymore, they're still part of my story. They're still part of what formed me. They're part of the, the seasons I've been through, the landscape I've walked, the sand and dust and snow that is a part of me that, is, that formed me in every way. And it's very easy for me to divorce myself from certain parts or to only focus in on certain parts or to use other parts as an excuse as to, uh, and I see that a lot in the Enneagram world, like using the type or an experience to, to as an excuse as to why I, I'm just this way and I can't do anything about it. And I don't want to give myself any of those opportunities. So I think when it comes to the story, I want to own all of it. I want to own the whole thing. I want to be honest about the whole thing. So I want to, I want to read you this, this thing that I share in in group coachings. It's a poem from my book, but it's, uh, this is something I always read in those groups because this is what I want people to get about their story. I tell people, Mm -hmm. this is a sacred circle where everything is welcome and everything belongs. Come sit in the circle where there is nothing between us but the distance we've traveled and the fire that keeps us warm. In this circle, your story is sacred ground. We will hold your failures like fine china, your tears and trauma like crystal, and we will celebrate your victories as if they were our own. We will be a compassionate witness to the twists and turns, the peaks and valleys that has formed the one before us. Our affirmation reminding you it's not over yet that the worst of you is temporary, the best of you is permanent. Come in and be, for there is solid ground beneath you and fresh air all around.
we had a listener send us a question a while ago, actually, about Encanto and Enneagram and trauma and how they overlap and are related. So we know you all did something Encanto-y. Yeah, I'm like, I can answer the Encanto <laughs> internets. one. Because I did a, a video after seeing the movie. I'm like, oh my God, there's a central character that doesn't know their gift. And they're surrounded by eight others with magical powers that exactly line up. <laughs> um, but as far as to the trauma piece, I'll leave that one to Joel. So how how are we how are we doing this? Like, we'll do- <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Joel rolls well, his eyes. Let's start with the video piece. Let's let's go. Well, let's I, go. Uh, I didn't silly, even put it honestly. Silly. I didn't even put it on our um, YouTube channel because I was like, uh, this is this does not represent the art of growth. <laughs> this is just me after seeing a kids movie with my daughter running into my studio the next day and recording this video off the cuff, where I was like, mm. this mm. just seems so blatant uh, that how like how is this not. Mm. I mean, the characters just seemed so perfect. You have three sisters that seem like the body triad. Mm. When I when I heard the song "Under Pressure," uh, or sorry, "Surface Pressure" by the older sister, she's like has to be tough and she has to be strong and all this time. Like I was crying because I was like, "This is like an eight anthem," mm. and my wife was crying at Mirabelle's song. You know, I'll I'll stand on the side as you shine. It was such a nine kind of an anthem. And then she has the sister who has to be, everything has to be perfect, right? Everything I do has to be perfect. And then you had all these other characters that were like similarly lined up. And I was like, this is just weird. So I don't know. I didn't hear the Encanto question, but like when I saw the movie, I, I flipped out a little bit because I was like, this is bizarre. So at the most basic thing, yeah. the instant thing is like what we were just talking about, how type is a strategy. You know, we need, we're trying to use yeah. it to solve something. You know, Suzanne, who works with us, she always says that we heard every message growing up, but certain ones stuck. Like every, the messages of all the types were around us, but we really gravitated towards certain messages. So I don't know that it was so much the circumstance as the the predisposition to attach ourselves to that in our meaning-making machines of our mind. But I don't know. Where would would you take this, Joel? Yeah, I, I, at this point, I mean, the approach I'm, I take is very much a combination of nature and nurture. I don't think that we can separate those out where none of us can. We're certainly not experts in that field. Uh, but even the experts in the field, you know, are, are divided and aren't entirely sure themselves as to what mm. is the nature versus nurture. We, we feel like, I personally believe that every person is born with a sensitivity, a predisposition, whatever, yeah. a lean. And that is like the, you know, it comes with assembly required. You know, there's a, there's something there, there's material there. And it's different from person to person. Mm-hmm. And parents with multiple children tell us this all the time. It's, you know, oh yeah, I knew my child was this this type from birth almost you know it just mm-hmm. could there was a at least i knew they weren't this mm-hmm. kind of a t- <laughs> this type and sure you're surprised along the way and i'm i'm not an advocate of trying to box your child in at all i think it's recognizing what are they telling you what's are you listening <laughs> are you paying attention what are they what, what's coming through yeah but i do think um trauma does impact for sure how you present yourself and mm-hmm. 
in some cases, some trauma will cause you to lean more into to the lower side of your mm-hmm. type. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll press the pedal down. If you're already the type that kind of withdraws and observes and stands back as a five, you might, you might do that even more. Mm-hmm. Conversely, you might do something different. You might, you know, be, because of maybe an instinctual, the, the instinctual stacking, you might have a different, uh, a different approach. I know some, some type nines who are the, who are narcissists. You know, it's, it's a, it's not what one would think, but because of trauma, there's, there's some that have turned into that. I know some who chronically are sleeping around having lots of affairs, uh, as nines, you know, and they're the ones hurting their partners. Now people would say, well, that's that, I just can't imagine that that would be, yes, but because of the trauma (laughs) as a child, there was a certain response that they had. Doesn't mean that they're not a nine. They still have all the features of the nine, but um, but there are certain behaviors that might stand out as a little bit anomalous from what you might, mm. you know, anticipate from from the mm. type. So again, I think it's it comes with assembly required. I think nurture does play a role, but nature does too. And as Jim said, the interpretations you're going to make are going to be pretty consistent with your type. You know, if your sensitivity is already to not feeling like maybe you know you might. Maybe you are sensitive to love in the exchange of love, the reciprocity of love as a type two. So because of that, the message you might interpret from a caretaker, a parent is, oh, you, you, you don't love me or, oh, you don't want me, right? Whereas the sibling might be, even a, an identical twin might look at that and say, no, that's not at all what was said. Mm. This is what was said. And this happens all the time. And so I think that's more of the sort of the, predisposition that comes the, the the sensitivity that comes through as opposed to the necessarily the strategy by which you yeah. then develop uh, to survive totally and I think of the type as like a it's a belief system in a lot of ways like you believe certain things about how the way the world works or how you need to act and the type is going to go looking for the com- confirmation of those beliefs mm-hmm. and so a lot of times we even draw are drawn towards experiences that are going to confirm our type and confirm that belief. And so I think that's why it's so important to include our whole story and integrate our whole story because, you know, what are the things that happened to me that I had no say in that I have to, I have to actually look at how this informed and, you know, certain things about my story that I thought were just normal life, but they actually, that was actually kind of messed up. Mm-hmm. That was kind of not normal, you know, and, and being honest about that. But then also uh, being honest about, well, I walked right into that relationship because it confirmed the things that I had in my heart. And I, I basically picked my own poison on that day. And I think we have to do both of those things. If we're not doing both those things, we're not really looking at the story honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to uh, kind of piggybacking a little bit off of what Joel was talking about. I really like to say that a person is what contextualizes type. And I think people get those confused as one and the same all the time. And it's why I don't think it's helpful to say nines do this or nines do that. Because right. because for, let's just take the nine, uh, conflict for me for this nine is going to feel different than what conflict feels like for you. So you have to contextualize what conflict is with the the archetype for the prototype. Otherwise, you get stereotypes. That's kind of the three Mm. that I like to use. 
Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that when you look at the way each nine, let's push this further, mm-hmm. each nine might interact or experience conflict. You know, I, I've typed some nines who have said, I've coached some nines who have said, oh, I don't have a problem with conflict. And I was stunned by that. I said, what do you mean by that? And oh, well, okay, that's interesting, right? So making space. And as they begin to talk more, they said, oh, no, no, as long as it's not with me. I don't mind if these other people are having a conflict. Actually, I feel like I can come in and help with that. I've coached other nines who say, I don't like any conflict of any kind in any environment, you know, and I will avoid it. I've had some who say, oh, no, I have no problem speaking up to Mm -hmm. those within my family system. No problem. I'll speak up and I'll say stuff and it doesn't bother me. And others who say, no, I can't do that, you know, in that environment. So it, it is, it's really, really right. Uh, for you to say that, I think, and very helpful for many people to to understand that 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 just it, there's it, and this is frustrating, of course, because people want something that is absolute every single time with every type, and mm-hmm. it 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 doesn't quite work that way. However, there are consistencies right among among the types that you start mm-hmm. to pick up on, mm-hmm. and and that that's the stuff that we try to get at, but that's a, a bit more archetypal as you were describing it. I think yeah. it's well said archetypal and then having the prototype and then the stereotype. Yeah. You know? Yeah. In the Enneagram community, there's, there's this, the thing that you're supposed to access all nine types. And once you access all nine types, then you will finally reach the point, right? You'll be enlightened. <laughs> I guess. And all your dreams will come true. <laughs> That's that's what we sell, people. Uh, <laughs> 1995. Uh, um, nope. <laughs> and I think, I mean, in some ways, Encanto, Encanto demonstrated this well, is they each have their own particular gifts that they've been yeah. given, that they have a, a specific skill set in that area. And for them to try to be one of, to try to finally get all the gifts, it's just, it's impossible, number one. Number two, it's, you're working against the thing you only have so much time, mm-hmm. right? So do the thing that you're really, really good at, that you're sensitive to, that you have passion for. The problem is the overdoing of that thing, um, trying to find it externally versus letting it express from internal. Um, so there is, uh, I would say, there is no finality in finally we have our whole, true, complete, full self. Once we have A, B, and C. It is how are you continually from moment to moment, from presence to presence, how are you actually living into the the fullness of what is right here, including the what is and what is not, the the darkness and the light, the contradiction and the resolution. And that, that including, that transcending and including is what we're talking about. There is no finally everything will be okay i hate the word process that's why Mm. i use it a lot because (laughs) (laughs) otherwise i gotta trick myself some way i gotta push myself some way you Mm. know i I hate process with everything Mm. in me it's never been my go-to but i have come to terms with and by practice not by it's not my starting point so Mm. by the practice of doing it is it's really the the point right so people get worried about like well I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Well, no, there is no there. Are you practicing? Are you doing the work? Yes. Then you're doing exactly what you need to be doing. Because like what you were saying, Creek, it it takes, I don't know that there is an ultimate. I don't know that. 
if everything is growing, if everything is expanding, if everything is evolving, then what is that thing? Mm-hmm. Right? The, the, the only way we, the, the problem is, is when we stop, when we try to create some monument, some stage, some arrival, some institution <laughs> around that particular stage and saying, we have landed, we have arrived. This is the epitome of, of, uh, of your journey. And I, I, I think that's a problem. That's, that's fundamentally the problem I think that we're dealing with today in a lot of, in a lot yeah. of areas. Um, so I'm careful not to take this too far yeah. and go places where, yeah. <laughs> where we'll uh, be talking well, for yeah, another three hours. So, yeah, no, I love that. Um, I love the kind of the direction you're going there. And I think I'm going to see if we can go a little farther with it. I, one of the ways that I appreciate looking at the Enneagram personally is through the lens of relationship versus identification. So how am I in relationship with all of myself versus how am I identified with limited parts of me to the exclusion of the rest? Excellent. And so so that is, to me, what what you're addressing here. Because another quote comes up, Gurdjieff says that all sin is identification. And then, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Dan Siegel. Yeah. He says sure. all, yeah. all sin is born of denial of relationship. Oh, so relationship and identification. So this is this is once you name it, you know, now you can become more than it. Mm-hmm. To, um, so to me, this is kind of what we're addressing about um, what it means to be not finalizing anything. This is the cataphatic again, and we yes. keep coming back to this thing. Right. But, but but what it means to be alive is to be a process. We are always mm-hmm. this this thing that cannot ever. You know, we're in step with the spirit, if you will. Mm. Yeah. And art, you might say. Exactly. <laughs> <Of> gross. <laughs> you might say that. Uh, we're just going to keep dropping that. I just dropped a fake mic and then I realized I have one. So. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I really like how you're talking about it's coming against finality, mm. that there is a, a sort of finality thing. To me, anytime I hear anything that sounds like that, that's when I, that's when the bells start going off in my head that I'm like, cult, cult, <laughs> cult. Like that's what it feels like to me. Yeah. It's like, oh, there is this arrival point. Mm. No, it's not it's not that, it's this. Mm. But I really like that. That's really helpful I think for people to understand the identification and relationship thing. Mm. It's because there is it, there is so much of like, well, I'm not. We identify, right? That's part of identity is by what I'm not. And like, you know, we if you come from the church world, you know the what people say about the church world right now, it's more known for what it's against than what it's for. And I think that happens within us too. That's actually w- one of our biggest national problems right now. We are more identified by what we're against than what we are for, that we are, or that actually including these different pieces, like it's to the exclusion. It's like, that's, that's bad relationship, even with the self. Exactly. You cannot change a part of yourself that you hate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's take this identity thing, right? This is good. Right? So you take this identity thing with yourself. You can also take mm-hmm. it into anything we do, politics. Mm-hmm. Identify with my politics more than I have a relationship with the people within it, right? This is, this is, this is conversation, you know, stealing it from, of course, uh, um, John O'Donoghue David and uh, David White, the, the, mm-hmm. the conversation. And I love how he says, no, something to the effect of no identity remains, you can't keep your identity if you're having a conversation, mm. if you're having a real conversation. There's parts of you you lose, which is terrifying mm. and good. And then he talks about the relationship with the unknown. 
how do you feel about the unknown? Mm-hmm. Mm. Right? So some people immediately have, you know, that reaction. It's like, yeah, but that's what's coming, the unknown. That's what's always evolving and forming. And so the, these conversations, this relationship piece is in all directions. And when we're not in relationship, as you said, Seth, that's, that's the problem. It's that identification, the over-identification. Again, as you said earlier, this is whole, like the, 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 there's a, a certain sense of category you have to have, right? So like, I hold my identity loosely. I think this, these are the components that make me up and, mm-hmm. you know, but I, and it, Jim and I have talked recently much more about transformation and growth taking place within community. Because there's so much individual work that also takes place in the self-help world that we're all a part of, you know, the sort of personal growth and development world that we're all a part of. And some of that takes place in isolation. Like, I'm doing my work, I'm doing my work, right? But meanwhile, your circle really finds you annoying and finds you... You know, a piece of, you know what? So, like, this happens all the time, and then people turn off. Like, I don't, whatever it is you're in, I don't want any of it, right? Because Mm. you're you're not actually listening to us. You're not hearing Mm. us. Certainly, there are certain groups you have to kind of start to distance yourself because there are people that don't like growth and don't want you to grow. Mm. But that's different from you're growing and you're listening and you're recognizing, oh, that's my impact on you? Oh, Okay. I understand. And I'm separating that from intention because maybe my intention isn't that, but still my impact is this. So I recognize that and I own that. And I'm, I'm sorry for that impact. Mm. And I recognize mm. that it's, it's, been, it's been negative. So I, I thank you for sharing that. And there's a sort of humility within that process, but you don't, I don't know how I'm being experienced. And sometimes the feedback, like my wife's saying, you're making me feel rushed right now. Mm. Well, I'm not doing anything. I'm just standing here. I feel you. Then I, I think I can blame her right now and say, that's on you. Or I can tune in and ask myself, is that what's happening in my inner self? Can I feel that energy, that need to move? Mm-hmm. And is it, as a seven, is it like really high right now? And I can tune in. Oh, yeah, it is. It is actually. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I am feeling rushed. So then I, that's part of the growth, right? So, so it's all of that, I think, is so important. If we're in relationship, we're actually able to grow, I think, in ways that we can't if we're alone. Totally. Yeah, and to Creek's point about Encanto, like, the the point is not to be everything, to, like, have all of the gifts within you. It it is in the context of a community. Mm. Like, wholeness, wholeness is never in the context of an individual. Yes. Totally. <laughs> That's good. Totally. And I don't think you can yeah. find I don't think you can find wholeness for yourself or unity of the parts within you without it being named ex- so on some level externally mm. so that you can find the totally. acceptance within. Like the unity has to, you know, they worked in tandem, I do think. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Y'all thanks so much for engaging this conversation. Yeah. It was delightful. And we should do this in person or something yeah. at some point. <laughs> if we didn't already say this, where can where can our people find you? The art of growth.org. <laughs> org. There it is. There it is. Yes. Wonderful. Uh, and I was on which episode? Hey, listen, you know the sexual nine. Seth was on Right, fire. you were on the this sexual was, nine uh, panel, yes, weren't you? Yeah, was. sexual nine. Yeah. Yep. That was awesome. Was fantastic. Yeah, that was so good. It was so fun. fun. 
Yeah, that season still stands out like as I think one of the bigger contributions we've actually made to the Enneagram world is having those 27 panels mm-hmm. of every subtype. I don't know that anything that I've read or experienced so far has taught me as much as that season did. Just feeling the energy of like a particular subtype and how they use language and how they interact, it was just so fascinating. So if anyone like checked out our podcast, like what's the first thing I should check out? I would say check out the mm, instincts panel first. Yeah. Uh, that season is just, it's just going to like help you so much understand the people around you understand the instincts but also just the nuance within that that type it's just fascinating right yeah. right well anything you guys want to just leave us with before we go any anything come up to the surface i i can only say that i am so grateful for the two of you and for the work that you're doing because i feel like we share a very much a similar kind of heart mm-hmm. a spirit whatever we want to call it you know i i read your posts all the time seth and i think man i'm tracking with you so much <laughs> um and uh so i really dearly appreciate knowing mm-hmm. that uh, we're not alone jim and i are not yeah. doing this and, and even though we hear from people all the time it's just it never gets old for me to run into folks like you mm-hmm. um to have these deeper conversations about growth and spirituality and so thank you for this gift own your story all of it it all belongs Mm. and it'll all be worth it in the end good let's go let's go thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms an Enneagram podcast if you found this episode helpful in any way consider sharing it with a friend or family member we are so honored to be on this journey with you discovering our inner depths one fathom at a time.